No, the books are much bigger. This is only until we get in the interim. So welcome to, from warrior to warrior, worry no more, you are here, everything will be taken care of. You know, talking about worrying, <coughs> they said this once this uh, guy came for the census, you know, there's a big deal about the census. So this guy, the guy that's taking the census comes to the Goldman house and he asks, does Louis Goldman live here? So he asks, says, no, says Mr. Goldman. So, well, then, what is your name? The census, ask, census uh, fellow asks. She says, well, my name is Louis Goldman. She says, one second. You just said the Goldmans don't live here. And you said your name was Louis Goldman. So Louis Goldman responds to the fellow. You call this living? <laughs> <laughs> but when we talk about what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks is going to be and try to make it a transformational journey, one that will hopefully pay dividends in pretty much every area of your life. And just to give you a quick overview of what we're going to be talking about today, yeah. besides sponsorships available, <laughs> um, today we're going to talk about achieving authenticity. In today's lesson, after we lay out the objectives of the course, and discuss the different first, and the, the different ideas that we will be discussing in today's course. Yeah. There, um, we're going to talk about the first thing is achieving authenticity, addressing the imposter syndrome, which we're going to get to later on. Next week we'll be discussing shame and adequacy. My thing is a little bit on the delay. Sorry about that. He's trying to be a shark. <laughs> Shame and inadequacy. Followed by, in lesson three, we'll be talking about healthy and productive ways of channeling our feelings. Is it a good thing to have guilt and remorse, or is it not a good thing? Why do people think it is a good thing? In lesson four, we'll be talking about the perspective on coping with life hardship, God forbid, tragedies. In the fifth lesson, we'll then start moving to the positive side of the spectrum and talking about how to live a life filled with happiness and positive emotions. Oh, it's not coming up. Oh, there we go. And finally, in lesson number six, we'll be talking about how to cultivate and maintain satisfying and healthy relationships. So, as you can see, during these six weeks, we're going to go through a spectrum of things, talking about from the negative emotions to the positive emotions, and looking not only for responses and solutions to the issues that we mentioned, but we're going to come and going to have, and the main goal of this class is to have some type of paradigm shift, have an absolute different perspective of how we view things and see things. Talking about a paradigm shift reminds me of a fellow who once walked Shabbos in the shul, and he's sitting next to his friend, and he's complaining, this Moshe over there is complaining the whole time, he's saying, oh, my shoes are hurting me, my shoes are killing me. He says, what's the matter? He says, oh, my shoes are so small on me. They're every aching and painful just to walk in them, to think about them. He tells them, I don't understand. You can afford a new pair of shoes, so go buy a new pair of shoes. What are you sitting and catching about your shoes that they don't fit? He says, let me tell you. My business just went bankrupt. This fellow, my family is not doing so well. My children are giving me aggravation. This thing is bothering me. So at least now when I take off my shoes, <laughs> I, my life feels so much better. <laughs> <coughs> So, when we talk about 
negative and positive emotions, before we plunge into the negative and positive emotions, let's do a little bit of an exercise here to just assess our general standing of where we stand today. And this is an interesting, uh, this is actually taken from a psychology book, but it's an interesting way to see where we are in the spectrum of where we have to get to from our negative and positive emotions. So if you look at exercise number one on page two, you will see it has over here 20 different items. You can write a score next to each one. <coughs> Nobody's testing you on this one. You can keep the score to yourself. And fill out one being very slightly or not at all, five being extremely. We need some pens? Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> and to fill out to see where you fall on the spectrum. You don't have to announce your answer. Take a minute to try to fill it out. You can look on the bottom that tells you the scoring. Afterwards, which ones to count for your negative emotions, which one to do for your positive emotions to know what your score is. to share your score, but as soon as we're done, I'll tell you what your average is, and you can know if you're above or beyond. <laughs> okay, so if you did a calculation of your scores, just to give you a little bit of what's going on, the scores, both positive and negative, can range anywhere from 10 to 50. The average positive effect score is 33.3. Higher scores representing a higher level of positive emotion. Lower than that, showing a lower level of, of positive emotion. The average negative effect score is 17.4. Higher scores representing a higher level of negative emotion, and lower than that meaning you're not that negative at all. So what we see over here is, and I'm sure all of us have room, at least I took it and I saw, we all have room to improve. And... Just at the risk of stating the obvious, I just want to clarify that this course does not resolve life issues that cause turmoil and frustration and heartache. These are life issues, practically speaking, and part of parcel of life that will not change, unfortunately, until Mashiach comes. But what we could do is we can control how we are affected by it. As one way wise person once said, 
the burdens are given from heaven. The aggravation we create on we create on our own. So, or as somebody else said, we can control the wind, but we can adjust the sails. <clears throat> the fact of the matter is that we can control, we could control our reaction, how we respond to the different events that happen in life, that are part of life. And what we're going to do today is learn how we can change our shift to be able to respond better to these variety of things that happen in life. And the first thing we're going to start with is especially how we respond with our emotional responses. And this is underscored in the following excerpt of a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You can see it in text number one, which pretty summarizes of what our goal is today. Text number one. In our world, everything is a mixture of good and bad. Human beings must choose which aspects they will emphasize, contemplate, and pursue. For in each person's life, there are two possible approaches. To see the good that surrounds us, or the opposite. It is instructive that our sages tell us that Adam was an ingrate. Even before he was banished from the Garden of Eden, where he lived at a liter- in a literal paradise, he complained about his circumstances. Conversely, there were Jewish men and women who thanked and blessed the Creator, recited the morning blessings while living through the most horrifying times in the German concentration camps. Ultimately, each individual circumstances will lie somewhere between the two extremes. Needless to say, my intention is not to imply that anyone deserves suffering, God forbid. My point is simply to underscore the reality. The types of lives that we live, whether full of satisfaction and meaning or the opposite, depends in large measure on our choice, which dictates whether we will focus on the positive or on the negative. We see very clearly from here, in short, what the Rebbe is saying here is, I can't help you with your stock portfolio. I can't help you about your leaky roof or the plumbing issue that you may have. But I, nor can I advise you about the health condition about somebody that in your family may have. Or the something, the problem that you're struggling with. But what this will help you is how we can avoid a spectrum of negative emotions that may arise because of it. That regardless of how well or how poorly you scored on the negative or positive emotions test, <clears throat> the premise of the course is that wherever we are in life, we can always do better. And what that better means. So we talk about positive and negative emotions, right? Positive and negative emotions, but what are positive and negative emotions? How do we identify what is a positive emotion and what is a negative emotion? So text number two gives us a little bit of an insight what is considered a positive or a negative emotion. Negative emo- text number two, page five. Negative emotions such as fear, sadness, shame, anger, contempt, guilt, disgust, and anxiety, disappointment, embarrassment, loneliness, envy, and hatred share the property of involving an appraisal of something is wrong. One's well-being is being threatened. One's goals having to be abandoned. One lacks what one desires. One views oneself as wrong or not projecting that desired appearance onto others, and so on. In contrast, positive emotions, happiness, gratitude, pride, love, relief, hope, and so on, involve appraisal that one is meeting one's goals and that that event does not come to pass, and that one is meeting or exceeding one's own standard of one's relationship with another is secure, and so on. In short, if I had to summarize, what does it mean? A negative emotion versus a positive emotion? A positive emotion means you're comfortable in your own skin. You're happy with the way things are going. 
A negative emotion means you're uncomfortable with your self-appraisal. You have a problem with who you are. And that's why you're going to feel, therefore, because of its sadness, shame, guilt, regret, whatever may come with it, envy, hatred, because you're uncomfortable with the situation that happened. While you have a positive emotion, can be that you're very comfortable with the situation, therefore you're excited, you're joyful, and so on. Now, we cannot confuse, and this is sometimes a mixture that people make a mistake, to confuse positive with something which is morally bad or good. You can have a positive emotion to something which is morally bad. For example, I can be excited that this person lost something, or got dumped, or whatever it may be. That may be a morally negative thing, but it is a positive emotion, because since you have that happiness. You can have a negative emotion towards something which is also something good. You're upset about, a, let's say, a loss in a family. You're upset, which is a negative emotion. But it's a good thing at that time that you're having that negative emotion to be able to overcome the grief and sadness that you're going through. So it's not necessary. Or you can have a negative emotion that can be morally correct or necessary. For example, you remorse because you did something wrong, which is nothing wrong. You have to have remorse that you did something wrong. So when we talk about negative and positive emotions, it's not necessarily talking about things which are morally correct or incorrect, or bad versus good, as we're going to get to in a moment. It is a feeling, and this is what we're comfortable with who you are, or uncomfortable with who you are. There are many bad people who are very comfortable doing what they do. They have a very healthy self-esteem. For them, that's considered a positive emotion, and we'll go into this a little bit further soon. They used to say, anybody here, the people of Chelm? So the people of Chelm are very brilliant people. And uh, they were warriors. So they decided, what are they going to do about everybody worrying? So they called a meeting of all the smart, very wise people in Chelm. And they decided they're going to pick Moshe the peddler, that he is going to worry for everybody. And in his, because he is going to worry for everybody, everybody will pay him a ruble a week, that he should be able to worry for everybody. All of a sudden, the one of the wise men got up and said, one second, if we're going to be paying him a ruble a week, what's he going to have what to worry about? Right, okay. <clears throat> so let's look about what are we going to talk about. So what we need to address. So if we were to look, if you look on page 6, you have two exercises and two things. Which of the following emotions do you hope this course will help you reduce? And which of the following emotions do you hope this course will help you foster and strengthen? We have over here two, chat, two uh, boxes, and we're going to revisit these two boxes at the end of the course in six weeks from now and see if, how much we've accomplished and how much we've progressed. And at the present moment, we know that our life is comprised as when a person views what their situation is currently. When you look at your scenario, you take the past, the present, and the future, and you take it all together. For example... Why is a person angry? It could be because of something that happened to him a week ago or ten years ago. Or he's, or he's concerned, he's worried, he's anxious because of something that's going to happen later. Or he's angry because of something happened right now. A trauma, an anxiety. All the different types of negative emotions that happen is because we're not a person that just lives in a binary time in a certain is right here, this moment. It is because we have a past, a present, and a future which is part of us. And they impact our frame of mind. And because of that, we want to move away from any of these negative emotions that cause us this type of angst, whether it's anger, 
um, trauma or, or uh, loneliness and authenticity, whatever it may be. And we want to be able to move to a positive emotion. So we have in exercise 1.2 is where we want to move from, and in exercise point 1.3 is where we want to move to. So you can mark for yourself, and the goal of this course is to resolve or at least reduce our negative emotion and strengthen our positive emotion. And as I mentioned, at the end of the six weeks, we're going to revisit these two boxes, these two tables, and hopefully see that we've either resolved or at the bare minimum reduced any of these negative emotions and we can hopefully come to a positive emotion. I have a question. Yes. What does the first word on the positive side mean? Alacrity. Alacrity, which means visus, excitement, that you, are, that you want to be able to do something, the opposite of laziness. That being said, I just want to comment that sometimes, not that I have to say the obvious, but it's as this class is being given in a Torah perspective, it does not take the place of a mental health professional. So if uh, anybody feels that there is a little more that they are discovering, so to speak, always speak to your favorite shrink. Okay. So let's go a little bit further now. Now that we set out our goals of where we want to go to. So we spoke about an objective. An objective which is that we want to move away from a space of negative emotions and move to a place that is filled with positive emotions. The question that everybody would ask is, what's wrong with negative emotions? Why? Why can't I just be with negative emotions? Why do I need to move from negative emotions to positive emotions? I know that I'm asking a silly question, or else what are you all coming here for? The whole class is about moving away from negative emotions. But in a practical sense, what does it mean, negative emotions? What's wrong with negative emotions? Anybody? Simply, you just don't feel good. Negative emotions is something which doesn't, you know, don't feel good about. While positive emotions... You feel good about it. You're great. Huh? So that's so beyond our quest for positive emotions, it's also that people want to feel good. And with positive emotions, we hope that we can feel good, while negative emotions drains us. And we're going to turn to the Tanya and most of this class, and one of the reasons why I find this class so exciting and, and very um, revealing and great most of this class is based on six chapters of the Tanya. And the Tanya, as we're going to get to in a moment, what the Tanya is and how the Tanya is so effective. And now the Tanya explains and really gives us the outline, and sometimes we think it's a bit of mystics, where it really gives us pragmatic and practical application of how we can actually change ourselves as the point, and as we're going to see what the Tanya's uh, modus operandi was, to change our natural being, to have that shift in the way we view, view and look at things. So we're going to turn to the Tanya, and we'll learn some about the Tanya was and so on in a moment. And first the question that the Tanya poses, and the Tanya says as follows, imagine you have two wrestlers, two people that are fighting. One is clearly larger and stronger, and one is small and weak. Who do you think is going to win the fight? So you would say the obvious question, the obvious answer is 
the person that's larger is going to win the fight. The Tanya says, not so quick. Let's see in text number 3.8. When attempting to be victorious over a physical opponent, such as in the case of two individuals who are wrestling with each other, each one striving to fell out with the other, one who is lazy and sluggish, will be easily defeated and will fall. Even if that individual is stronger than the other, it is exactly so in the struggle against one's negative impulses. The Tanya says something here very interesting. Being stronger doesn't make you necessarily win. What makes you win? It's not the size of the man, but it's the size of the fight. The one who has the enthusiasm, the passion, the excitement to be able to come over, that's the one who wins the fight. You have a Ferrari and a Chevy having a race, a car race. Which one's going to win the race? You say for sure the Ferrari's going to win, but not so. We know that life is a struggle in every moment and every part of the day is a struggle, as we'll soon see. And God has given us the tools for us to be able to overcome the struggle. There's a stronger one and there's a weakling. We are the muscular one. We are the wrestler, we are the Ferrari. But there's only one way we can win. If the Ferrari is out of gas, the Chevy's going to win. You can have the most beautiful engine, the nicest car, with all the big you know, uh, bells and whistles that you want to be able to win the race. But if you don't have gas, you're not going to win. You can be the strongest guy in town, but if you have no interest in winning the fight, you're not going to win the fight. The Tanya says the same thing is also with our negative impulses. The same thing is also when we have to combat the negative emotions. Text number 3b. It is exactly the same struggle against one's negative impulses. <clears throat> it is impossible to conquer them with laziness and sluggishness, which originate in the negative emotion and in a heart that is numb like stone. In one sentence, what the Altareb is saying over here, a very important idea. There is no such thing as a lazy person. Proof of the pudding is, take the laziest person and tell him you're giving, a week, giving him a free week in Hawaii flight paid for first class. All hotels for just he has to be ready in three hours. You think they'll do it? Yes. <laughs> but he's a lazy person. Motivation. Not only, he has to be interested in what he is. He was uninspired. All of a sudden he's excited. Now he hasn't. So what we come from here is, what we see is that the reason... Why do we lose the fight? Number one, laziness. But where does that laziness come from? The laziness is because of a negative emotional state which is in us, which causes us to be lazy. And because of that, we lack any excitement and we don't have any joy to doing it. Let's use a common example. Everybody at some point in their time some time, some point of their life, had to go on some type of restrictive diet, right? Whatever it was for, whether it was for weight loss or for medical reasons, you had to restrict yourself from eating something. And it's probably safe to assume that we kept to it as good as possible. But what day, if you think back to the time when you broke the diet, why did you break the diet when you sat down with a tub of ice cream? Was it because you had a great day at work that day? <coughs> Or was it because you had a miserable day that day? 
Most cases are going to be is because you are likely feeling sad, angry, lonely. Pick any negative emotion which caused you to indulge in something which you usually restricted yourself even for your own personal gain. That means even though you were benefiting from the diet and you were happy about it, you exercised. What day did you say, oh, I'm not interested in going to do the exercise? Was not the day that you were all excited, but was the day that you felt down, dreary, upset, and that was the day that you didn't want to do it. What we see over here is the negative emotion is toxic to who we are. Negative emotions cause us to be depleted. Our gas is positive emotion. Our gas that keeps us going, that keeps us as a person, as a human, staying positive, staying happy, being who we are, is being happy. So what fuels us in our struggles? What gives us that gas? How do we get that gas? So let's go back to the Tanya for a moment. So the Tanya states as follows. Rather, Conquering one's negative bone pulses requires alacrity, which derives from positive emotion and from a heart that is free and cleansed from any trace of worry and negative emotion whatsoever. What is our gas? Our gas is positive emotions. Just like a car needs gas to run, we need to be happy people to be able to be productive. We need to be positive to be able to be productive. We need to, be, we need to make be positive people in a positive state of mind, because if not, everything goes kaput. It's gone. The car doesn't work. We can't fight the struggle. The flip side of dieting, for example, if many of us had the moments in our lives we had a large, difficult task to do, and I'm sure that when you have that positive energy, you have that adrenaline running, then all of a sudden you can accomplish anything. Nothing stands in your way. There's a popular Hasidic saying, text number four, there is no biblical commandment mandating that we be joyful. Likewise, negative emotion is not prescribed by any biblical mm-hmm. prohibition. But joy accomplishes what no mitzvah can accomplish. And not a negative emotion causes greater damage than any sin. What is this telling us? I may not be doing anything wrong by feeling lonely, aggravated, anxious, or whatever it may be, a negative emotion. But what does that cause me to do? more than any sin that can do. But when I'm happy, and I have that adrenaline, I have that excitement, I feel good, I'm then able to conquer the world. I'm sure many of you in your own life have had experiences where you felt good that day, and you were able to get through all the papers you needed. You were able to get through all the different work that you wanted in the house, and all of a sudden, everything was just like working easily. I have this story that once this happened about (coughs) over 10 years ago. There was an elderly woman. I sure was an elderly at the time, I should say. She passed away already by now, but uh, unfortunately with terrible disease. But we went to her house to put up a mezuzah. I remember this was about 12, 13 years ago. And I come into the house to put up the mezuzah to the Middle Island. And she said she bought this beautiful cover from Israel that she wanted to put up, put the mezuzah in. And she was looking for the cover. And all of a sudden, she can't find the cover. Now, what happens when the wife can't find the cover? Whose fault is it? The husband's, right? And she starts getting upset. Where did you put the cover? And all of a sudden, the whole fighting suit. He put it away. You were supposed to keep it for when the rabbi comes. And there was a whole negative emotion that was being created because they couldn't find the cover to put the mezuzah in that they wanted to put up. So I said, halt. I mixed it. And I took the husband. 
And I said, let's dance. And we started dancing, singing a Hasidic song. And we put ourselves in good spirit. And as soon as we started dancing, this is what I'm telling you, the story happened. The mezuzah cover was sitting right there on the dresser where it was sitting the whole time they found it. What happened? Very simple. When a person becomes focused primarily on the negative, where did you put it? You did it, I did it. They forget even to look. They lose their sense of being. <clears throat> but when you put yourself in a positive emotion, in a positive state of mind, you all of a sudden, your mind goes open. You even look when you're reading a book. If you even just keep your eyes open at the entire page while you're reading, you'll see how much quicker you read. Instead of glancing, you're looking up and down the whole time, so you're not focused on reading, so you keep on reading the same line again and again. Subconsciously, you don't even realize it. The idea over here is that the positive state of mind puts us into such a, such a state that we are able to accomplish and do things that is our gas. And just like a medical practitioner focuses primarily not in curing the symptom, but in healing the underlying illness, the Alter Rebbe in his Tanya is a doctor of spirit and addresses not just the symptoms, the local breakdowns and failures, but he addresses the cause, which is the negative emotions. The cause which causes us to be depleted from our energy is the negative emotions. And therefore, this was a noble and revolutionary approach in Judaism at the time. It was always known to serve God. We always know to serve God with joy. But for this purpose of joy, why does it mean joy? What does joy do? That to make joy, that joy is the fuel to do the mitzvah, this was the Alter Rebbe's concept. So just to have a quick recap of what we just learned here. Number one, negative emotions. They exacerbate our problems. And because of that, they spawn, because of that, life becomes a hundredfold even worse because of the negative emotions. Number two, negative emotions deplete our energy take out the gas from our engine and don't allow us to do what we need to do and cause us to lose the fight. And number three, what this course will help us do, hopefully, is give us the tools to be able to refill our car with gas and with those positive emotions. So in order to be able to get those tools, to get the gas in our car, we're first going to start with a little bit of background about the Tanya with the following video. The followers of Habar Lubavitch refer to the book of Tanya as the Bible of Hasidism. It has spawned several thousand editions published in myriad locations across the globe. And it is studied daily by thousands of Jews, in private, in classes, online. This is what the page should look like. And through apps. Its author, Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, was an 18th century scholar and mystic of rare abilities. While our nation produced many great sages over the millennia, Rabbi Schneer Zalman stands among the select few that tower over our people's history and power our progress to an inspired destiny. In 1775, 
He founded the Chabad Lubavitch Hasidic movement, and in 1796, he agreed to have his magnum opus, the Tanya, published for public benefit. For 20 years, Rabbi Schneer Zalman painstakingly weighed each letter and word of his manuscript, and Jewry has spent the subsequent 200 years unpacking the gifts of guidance he invested within those sacred phrases. In the Tanya, one discovers a highly methodical presentation of the foundational principles of Hasidism. How to serve God sincerely, joyfully. How to remain humble, motivated. How to deal with inner struggles. The purpose of life, of challenge, of existence, of the individual. Insights flow with clarity, forming a cohesive river of wisdom that revolutionized Jewish thought. Surprisingly, the Tanya is not written in the style of a philosophical or theological thesis. Rather, it is framed as a response. Here is the work's purpose as expressed by its author in his foreword to the Tanya. I address those with whom I had frequent warm conversations and who revealed to me all the secrets of their hearts and minds in all that regard to their heartfelt service of God. This work is comprised of responses to many questions frequently posed by Hasidim in our land, for they seek advice and moral guidance in the service of God, each according to their spiritual station. Time no longer permits me to reply to everyone individually and in detail. Besides, people forget the responses I give them in the course of conversation. I have therefore recorded all the replies to all the questions to be preserved for perpetuity and to be readily available to all. There is no longer any need for people to press to be admitted to talk with me in private. For in this work, everyone can find counsel to soothe their soul and proper guidance on any matter that one finds difficult in the service of God. Rabbi Schneer Zalman was overwhelmed. He had perfect answers to difficulties that had plagued sincere worshippers since the dawn of time. Who would not wish to meet him and receive life-changing guidance? But a day has only so many hours. While he had tens of thousands of followers who streamed to his door from across Eastern Europe, he therefore sent his quill to paper in an effort to do what none had dared to do before, to collect answers to a lifetime of spiritual questions from people of all walks of life. This book would contain, in his words, all the responses to all the questions, and it would be formatted so that it was readily available to all, for all Jews, for all times. The Tanya contains solutions for each individual's struggles in their spiritual and emotional lives, for the Jews of his own times, and for our struggles today. text that was mentioned is actually text number uh, number five that you see in, on page ten. So the Tanya, just to summarize quickly, the author is Rabbi Schneerzman of the Abbey, originally from Ukraine in 1796. The content is foundational principles of Hasidism written as a response. That's a little picture there of the handwritten response from Rabbi Schneerzman. And interesting, just a few t- t- side notes about just how the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, wrote the Tanya. In fact, if you look at the Tanya, he calls it a collection of talks. He doesn't even call himself 
the author, he calls himself the compiler, that he just compiled ideas. He calls it based on ideas of different books that he put together to be able to give people advice. And you see, even in how he writes, it is humility of how he has it all about. And the Alter Rebbe, again, talks about this, and he said he compiled this only to make it easier for us today to be able to look back and understand and see how we can fuel our positive emotions to avoid the negative emotions. So, what is the nature of the struggles that the Hasidim discussed with the Alter Rebbe? What did they talk about? What was it that the Alter Rebbe is addressing? So, if you look in exercise 1.4, 1.4, the question is, for most people, the primary struggle in life is between what? Anybody? Good and evil, right and wrong, right? Perhaps the most foundational idea in Judy, most people struggle, what's right and what's wrong, what's morally correct, what's not morally correct. And what the Tanya over here is going to do, and what we're going to understand, is the Tanya, not only the resolution to the struggle, but also defines what the struggle is all about. <coughs> because when you know what the struggle is, you're better equipped to understand how to overcome the struggle. So what is the primary struggle of life? The Kabbalists put it this way. Text number 6a. Rabbi Chaim Vital and Shari Akdusha, this is quoted from the Tanya, chapter 1, that each one of us, whether righteous or wicked, has two souls, two distinct life forces. As it is written, I have created souls. One life force originates in unholiness. All negative character traits stem from that life force. Just a little bit on who Rabbi Chaim Vital was. Rabbi Chaim Vital was a student of Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Arizal, the famed Kabbalist. The Arizal himself, who revolutionized the understanding of Kabbalah the way we know it today, never wrote anything down himself. He only allowed his student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, from his many students, he only allowed Rabbi Chaim Vital to transcribe it, and... He, before he passed away, he authorized him as his student to write down what he wrote. There, uh, Rizal died at a very young age, I think in the age of 40. And with that, we have the ideas of what the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Gloria, transmitted to his students orally, whereas they were transcribed by Rabbi Chaim Vital. Many parts of the Tanya are quoted from Rabbi Chaim Vital's book, The Eitz Chaim. And over here, what the Alter Rebbe is saying is as follows. That every single one of us has two life forces. The first of the two souls is the source of all our negative character traits. The second one is, and that soul stems from unholiness. But then there's the spiritual forces, which comes from the godly soul. But let's first talk about this other soul. The first one. The one that's the source of all negative, negative characters. What kind of negative characters? characteristics? For example, anger, pride. Frivolity. These all come from unholiness. These are things that obscure and don't allow me to see God or what God wants me to do. But what about good things? Where do they come from? And over here, the Alter Rebbe says something very interesting. Text number 6b. The life force is also the source of good character traits, such as mercy and benevolence. One second. If it's a negative soul, how does it then have good character traits? 
Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Think about that. But let's talk about the second soul. Who is the second soul? Text number 16. The second life force is a part of God, literally. So we have in ourselves, Rabbi Chaim Vital tells us that we have a makeup of two souls. The two souls are made up, we have the natural soul, which is sometimes called the animal soul, and the reason why at times it's called an animal soul is because the human being and the animal are almost very similar. The only thing that the human being is different than the animal is that we have intellect. Animals don't. But the reason why it's called the animal soul is just like the animal does things only for its self-preservation, so too the human being, when it follows that type of soul, is because it's doing things for self-preservation, not for a godly reason. So that is the natural soul, our natural go-to. Then we have the divine soul. What is the difference between the two of them? Number one, the, na- the natural soul is the source of all negative character traits. As we mentioned before, anger, frivolity, pride. It is also the drive for self-preservation, self-gratification. All come from the natural soul. What's the bottom line about the natural soul? It's self-focused. It's self-oriented. The natural soul is the selfishness of the individual whether it's self-reservation, self-orientation, whatever it may be, it is all about self. The godly soul, by nature of it being divine, is selfless. And because it's selfless, it's a spark of God. A spark of God which is only constantly thinking about what its purpose is here in this world. And because it thinks and only knows what its purpose is, its whole idea, its whole method and mission is to occupy and to do the divine will. And therefore the divine soul is one way focused. It's God focused, nothing else. When we talk about the difference between the natural soul and the godly soul, in short, if you want to summarize it, one is selfish, one is selfless, one is man-oriented, one is godly-oriented. The natural soul, on the other hand, is focused on itself, while the godly soul is focused on God. And this, the Alter Rebbe tells us, is the ultimate battleground in life. The ultimate battleground in life is as follows. And remember we said that even the natural soul, negative emotions, also have some good, even the good character traits come from it. Let's take an example. The battle between the divine soul and the natural soul is not necessarily about good and evil. In fact, there's one thing that they do agree in. Is doing good. But there's two ways how you can do good. The source of good character traits can come from the natural soul. But why? Because being good makes me feel good. I don't want to feel miserable. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do good. Because when I do good, I feel good. But where is that coming from? The natural soul. Because why am I doing that good? Because I want to feel good. What's the difference if it comes from the godly soul or the natural soul? You may say, big deal. I'm doing good. Anybody? Motivation. Motivation. Okay, motivation. But at the end of the day, is that person doing, getting good? Are we doing good? Yeah. Different focus. So it's a different focus. Doing good makes you feel good. So it's natural soul often wants to be on board with it. 
The difference is, at what point will I continue to do good? As long as it makes me feel good. The moment I don't feel good, let's say the person that I was being kind to offended me. What do I do then? I stop doing it. Why? Because it doesn't make me feel good anymore. Rabbi, this says being good. Does it mean being good or doing good makes you Both. feel good? Both. Being good makes you feel good and doing good makes you being feel good. good. Being good means a good person. Being a good person means doing good as well. But when we talk about being good, being good meaning merciful, benevolent, your identity, when you do something, it becomes who you are. You can't separate yourself from what you do. You can say, it's not your hand that gave charity. It's you that gave charity. It's not your mouth that said a nice word to somebody. It's you, that person. You know, as little kids, we used to say, I didn't hit you, my hand did it, right? But that's not the way it works. It's you, the individual. So therefore, when we talk about the battle, the divine and natural soul, it's not necessarily between good and evil. It's again between the natural soul is also capable of doing evil, but the only reason that it's doing evil, it's, well, I'm sorry, why it's doing good, is because it wants to feel good. And so the natural soul is important to doing good. What about the battlefield of life? The battlefield of life tells us it's not about good versus bad. Natural soul enjoys to feel good. It's the natural soul is about who I am. The natural soul says, why do I do things? Why? Because I want to do A, I want to do B. I can do something for myself because it's about myself. The godly soul says, it's not about who I am. It's not about what who I am, but it's about what I am doing it for. What I am. Where will I be? What's my motivation? The same idea comes about when it talks about the battle. If we think that it's only about good and bad, so then when do I have that battle? Only when I come to a choice between good and bad. But if it's about who I am as an individual, so then the battle is constant. When I'm eating, when I'm drinking, why am I eating? Why am I drinking? Am I eating it because I want to feel good? Or am I eating it because there's a godly mission for me to do? So you see the difference. And yes, I'm setting the bar very high. But at the same time, the battleground, we have to know where the battle is between the natural soul, between the godly soul. The natural soul is all about myself. The natural soul is all about how am I going to get myself better in some way, shape, or form. It's self-oriented. It's absolute selfish. Self-oriented. <coughs> because it's about myself. So if we look in the conventional understanding between right and wrong, and here's where we have a little bit of a better, and you have it in your table in front of you, mm-hmm. the conflict is usually we think it's about moral versus immoral. The Tanya's understanding of it is it's about God versus yourself. Now, the driving question is, what will I do? It's not what will I do, it's what, who, I, who am I? What's my identity? When's the time of conflict? Only when I'm faced between good and bad. The Tanya looks at it, it's a constant struggle. And the Alter Rebbe, when he talks about the Tanya, he describes about a Bainini as an individual who realizes the constant struggle and is able to overcome it, which is a very high level. But what's our natural, when we're born, what is our natural inkling? Our natural inkling is selfish. Our natural inkling is that our natural soul consciousness comes in. It's not our divine soul consciousness. 
The natural human being, the nature of the human being is that I'm self-centered. I focus on myself. I make sure that I'm covered. And therefore, to live a life from the divine soul view, from a Jewish perspective, and making this shift is something which is the most important and can, is our goal in the world. And of course, it's very that's our ultimate goal. And irrespective of the gain that we make from this shift, at the same time, at least as we even have in mind of what the shift is, resolving to be able to negate the negative emotions, the natural soul, helps us. And instead of occupying space of the positive emotions, it gives us the ability to move and progress and to fuel that we should be able to have those positive emotions. If you look at the prophet Isaiah said it best, in text number 7, those who are humble shall continuously rejoice in joy. There are two words for the word humble in Hebrew. The word humble in Hebrew can either mean a shuffle, which means a low self-concept, where a person has a low self-esteem, makes himself as a, doorna- a doormat. A person who is, implies a person who is meek, leaks confidence in the low self-esteem. But then there's the word anav, which means also humble. It says Moses was anav. Moses was humble. Does it mean that Moses was meek? Does Moses have a lack of a self-esteem? On the contrary, Moses knew exactly his talent, knew exactly how great he was. But at the same time, why was he considered humble? Because his divine soul is what empowered him. But that's not because he was meek at the same time. It was because he felt selfless. He was humble. Yes, he expressed it in that type of way to find an excuse that he didn't want to be the leader of the Jewish people. But you saw that when he had to take a stand to be able to kill that Egyptian who started up with a Jew, he had no problem stopping them. In front of God, he said, God, who am I? Why should I be a leader? Because his divine soul was the center of his universe. His natural soul was nothing. I have a speech impediment, meaning, who am I? What kind of quality do I have to be a leader? I'm selfless. I have nothing to do. He specifically was happy with the situation. That means it wasn't something that bothered him. A person who has a negative emotion, let's go back to the other one, a person with a low self-concept, a shuffle, has a negative, a negative outlook. I'm a doormat. Nobody looks at me. Might as well just step on me, dump it on me. Don't worry, I'll just do it. That's a shuffle. Another is a person who, and that's why it says, this is the person that Isaiah says is happy. Who are the people that are happy? You're constantly joyous because you're unencumbered by that negative emotion. You don't have to worry about yourself the whole time. A person who's always worried about what am I going to feel like? How am I going to feel? Is always worried. Okay, I have that anxiousness. How am I going to feel? What am I going to do? What am I going to wear? But if I'm not cared, if I don't, not that I don't care about myself, I I live for something greater than that. These things don't matter to me. You live a happier life. So the shift over here that we're going to see, and this is what we're going to focus the next six weeks, is how we can shift our focus from our natural soul onto our divine soul. How we can shift from the negative emotion and fuel our positive emotion with that gas to be able to see that what really matters. And what we're going to look at today is take one example, which is the imposter syndrome. And we're going to look at today just for... one practical tool that emerges from the discussion that we just had. 
So we mentioned before that properly defining the struggle is important to overcoming the struggle. Knowing the enemy, so to speak, is the best way how to fight the enemy. So now that we know what the struggle is, we are on our way to be able to resolve it. So let's take one example, and probably this example, many people don't struggle with it, but it's a good example nonetheless, and we'll talk about it today, and the next week we'll move on to getting deeper into this issue with other examples, which may be a little more relevant and so on. So number one, to know what the struggle is allows us to resolve it, and B, to circumvent potential negative emotions that can come because of the struggle. What's today's struggle that we're going to talk about is something called imposter syndrome. Anybody ever hear it before? Anybody here taking psychology classes at all? Okay. Well, here is the identification of imposter syndrome. It sounds way out there, but I'm sure as we learn more about it, you can, some people can identify with this. Text number eight. Have you ever felt like you don't belong? Like your friends or colleagues are, doing, are going to discover you're a fraud and don't actually deserve your job and accomplishments? If so, you're in good company. Listen to this. These feelings are known to as imposter syndrome or what psychologists often call imposter phenomena. An estimated 70% of people experience the improper feeling at some point in their lives. According to a review article published in the International Journal of Behavioral Science, imposter syndrome affects all kinds of people from all parts of life. Women and men, medical students, marketing managers, actors, and executives... Imposter syndrome can apply to anyone who isn't able to internalize their, and own their successes. So psychologist Audrey Irving. Imposter syndrome expert, uh, expert Valerie Young says, who is the thought, who's the author of the book The Subject Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, who also found imposters in, in people who experience imposter feelings. Perfectionists set extremely high expectations for themselves, and even if they meet 99% of their goal, they're going to feel like a failure. And small mistakes will make them question their own competence. So, anybody now start identifying with a little more now? Okay, so what do we call imposter syndrome, which we can call sometimes we don't get excited about all the things that we, sometimes we question ourselves, let's put it that way. We say, you know what, if somebody else would have this job, if somebody else would give this class, they'd probably give it better than I am. Or I could tell you what an imposter is, right? Or we put on a fake facade of who we are to be able to get through the day. I'm not really happy. I really don't care to meet this person. But I have to be able to put on that smile, that stewardess smile, whatever they want to call it, to be able to make that call, to be able to do that shift or whatever it may be. That is what we call imposter syndrome. So sometimes we can't get excited. We fail to capitalize on the full range of positive emotions that are available to us. And the reason is because we feel like a hypocrite. We feel like a pretender. <laughs> Let's take some Jewish examples just to make it simple. I give charity, but I really don't want to give that person charity. I'm only giving it to them because since they called me already six times, and that's why I'm giving it to them. So I'm not excited about giving the charity. I reluctantly give it to them. Or I go to shul because I had six people calling me and complaining how come they didn't see me or the rabbi is nudging me. I really don't feel comfortable there. That's not my place. That's not my forte or things like that. Or any other experience in Judaism. What happens? Or any not only experience in Judaism. I show up to a holiday event. I really don't want to be there. I have to be there because I'm not there. The boss doesn't give the bonuses, whatever it may be. There's all different variety of things in life that we do things because we really don't want to do them. And we're putting up a front while we're there. 
Now, what's the problem with that? A, we don't feel happy about what we're doing. Why don't we feel happy about it? So what we have over here is, I did a good deed. Pick any good deed. Let's pick charity for that matter. It's easy. I did a good deed. It's not a reflection of who I am. Why is it not a reflection of who I am? I feel inauthentic. Because I'm not doing it for the right reason. I'm only doing it because I was nudged. I'm only doing it because of a guilty conscience. So what happens now? I'm unhappy. Why am I unhappy? Because I just gave this person $100, $50, $30, and look, they're not using it right. They're going to call me tomorrow for another $50. Whatever it is, I don't feel happy about it. What's going to happen when I don't feel happy about it? I get frustrated. Every time they call, I get that anxiousness. Ivy, what am I going to do? I don't want to hang up on them, but I want to don't pick it up. If I pick it. And all of a sudden, we get frustrated. What happens when I get frustrated? What am I going to do? The likelihood is, I probably won't do it again. I probably won't give charity again. I don't want to get into this mess. You help somebody. Whatever it may be. And you don't feel like you're helping them for the right reason. And therefore, when you don't do it for the right reason, what happens? You feel upset. You feel unauthentic. You get frustrated about it, and your likelihood of doing it is not going to happen. So the argument can be made, in fact, <clears throat> that living a selfless life, let's go back to we said we have to live selfless. Maybe that's inauthentic, because I'm not really selfless. Maybe living a selfless life is feeding into this imposter type of behavior. That's not authentic. The real me is selfish. I was born to be selfish. Let's not convince myself. I really want to feel good about doing the mitzvah, but I want to feel good. Yes, God is nice and everything is wonderful, but I like to feel good too. And when I try to convince myself that I'm doing it for a godly reason and not for this, that seems fake. Isn't selflessness a breeding ground for imposter, for inauthenticity? So let's look at a story in the Bible. A story in the Torah in the book of Genesis, which will help us understand this. Before there were sonograms around, Rebecca was pregnant with children. Child, she didn't know if it was children or a child. And the Torah tells us in text number 9a, the children struggled within her, and she said, if so, why did I desire to conceive? And she went to seek a divine counsel. Now, what happened here? Rivka was bothered by something. And the Talmud explains to us that when Rivka would walk by a synagogue, she would still kicking as if the child wants to come out. And when she would walk by a house of worship of idols, she would also feel kicking that the child wants to come out. And she didn't know what's going on over here. What kind of child do I have within myself? A child that's looking to go to the synagogue and a child that's looking to go to idolatry. What's happening here? And she was disturbed. So she went to the prophet. And the Medrash tells us the prophet at the time was Shane, the son of Noah, in hope of receiving some clarity and giving her a sonogram, an ultrasound of what's going on inside. And the prophet tells her as follows. God said there, two nations, text number 90, are in your belly, two kingdoms will separate from your womb. One kingdom will always be mightier than the other kingdom, and the elder will serve the younger. Rivka heard, she's having twins. Two children. 
One who's going to be different than the other. You're going to have a Yaakov who's going to sit and study Torah. And you're going to have an Esau who's going to be out in the field running and hunting and be an idolatry. So the biblical narrative tells us that Rivka was satisfied and happy and you don't see her complaining again until the children were born and everything else. The question that that's wondrous over here is why was she happy? She heard she's going to have a child in idolatry. The knowledge that she's going to have, okay, fine, she's going to have an access from one child. But there's a child she's going to have an idolatry. Is that nice? Does that want a, um, a mother, the matriarch of the Jewish people? She knows that she's going to have a child who she's not going to have any nachas from whatsoever, as we see in when he lived his life. So perhaps one way of understanding it is that Rivka came to terms that it's better to have one child on the straight and narrow path with a normal set of ideals than, and one child not than having one child who's confused and mixed up. That Rivka believes it's better to have a child that knows who he is, knows his struggles in life, than a child who's back and forth. Today he's going to synagogue, tomorrow he's going to idolatry. It's probably safe to say that Rivka was not ecstatic about the fact that one of her children was going to be far from a great Talmud Chacham, Torah scholar, and probably not the greatest individual that she was going to have nachas from. But over here the story is telling us something even deeper. That these twins are true in our lives. Every single one of us is carrying twins. And every single one of us is carrying twins, and those twins, the Yaakov and the Esau, the Jacob and the Esau, represent the divine soul and the natural soul. And it is very common that many of us feel the distress of our matriarch Rivka. Who am I? Am I an idolater or am I a synagogue goer? I feel this mix-up in my life. On one hand, I do keep kosher, but I don't keep kosher. I do go to synagogue, but I don't keep kosher. I give charity, but I don't want to. I do, and I don't. Who am I? I lost my identity. Am I a Yaakov or an Esau? Which one do I, do I ascribe to? Jacob, the divine soul, or am I an Esau, the natural soul? So what does God come along and tell us? What does the prophet say? Relax. Don't get so anxious. Don't worry about it. You have twins. You're both. You're 100% authentic. There's no compromise in the womb whatsoever. It is just two different reactions from two different souls that you are comprised of. The Alter Rebbe uses an illustration, and one that we can probably all relate to, is when a person prays. And he says as follows, text number 10. Do not be upset or dejected while serving God in prayer, for it ought to be joyous experience. On the contrary, intensify your efforts and focus your energy to concentrate on your prayer with increased joy and gladness. Understand that the foreign thought that has entered your mind drives from the natural soul which wages war against the divine soul of all the struggles. Do not ascribe to the commonly held error that a foreign thought is evidence that my prayer is worthless, and that if your prayer was proper, no foreign thoughts would intrude. This would be true if you possessed only one soul. A single soul that both prays as well as an experience of foreign thoughts. The deepest truth is, however, is that you have two souls that wage war against each other. 
The Altarib over here is giving us an analogy as follows. Imagine if you were praying and some anti-Semite comes and stands next to you and starts yelling at you, what are you praying for you, blah, 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 and everything else. And you just go on to pray. Does that change your prayer? Is your prayer less authentic because it was somebody yelling on the side? Absolutely not. The Alter Rebbe says exact same thing. When you're praying and some foreign thoughts all of a sudden distract you, you know what that is? That's the anti-Semite just inside of you yelling at you. Does that change your prayer? Absolutely not. And over here, the Alter Rebbe tells us the golden rule. That because I have two souls, there is no such thing as hypocrisy. I did a good deed. That is a reflection of my divine soul, did a good deed. And because of that, the good deed is always authentic. Regardless of what came before it, regardless of what came after it. I showed up to shul. Beautiful. Your divine soul is glowing. Your daven. Your divine soul is going. Ah, you got a disturbance? That's that anti-Semite. So what? That's the natural soul doing his job. And therefore, what do I have from that? Absolute joy. There's nothing to be upset about. Take joy that you accomplished something. You ate kosher today. You did a mitzvah today. You did a good deed today. Wonderful! I, all of a sudden, why did I do it? Should have I done it? How have I done it? That's your natural soul, draining your cup, making you, giving you nonsense, just battering. But what you did, that's your divine soul. Judaism isn't about all or nothing. Judaism isn't, okay, if I didn't do it 100% the way for 100% of the time, that's it, doom and gloom. On the contrary. We have a natural soul, we have twins. One's going to synagogue and one's misbehaving. It's not hypocritical. It's two separate identities. The example, we understand the struggle when it talks about, <clears throat> and this concept of knowing that we have the two souls is key to maintaining the idea of the struggle and also winning the struggle to be able to instill the positive emotions. Because now, what do I have? What do I have the benefits of this model? I now go to negative emotions that come from feeling well and inauthentic. The rationale is every selfless deed is automatically authentic. There is no such thing as inauthenticity. Everything is authentic from my divine soul. And as we go through the lessons, and as you're going to see, this chart is going to expand of looking at the area of where my negative emotion may stem from, and then by taking in mind and keeping in mind the divine soul model, we will then see that all these negative emotions just fade away and they don't have any place because the reason, as we look at the root effort of where it came from, we will then see the root of where it's from automatically when I look at the divine soul model doesn't exist. As we said before over here, just take this case. Take any case in your own life or you had some type of reduce of a felling of authenticity. Let's say you're a perfectionist. Let's take a practical example. What aggravates you the most in your inauthenticity? Whether it's you're a perfectionist or you feel that somebody else can be better at doing the job. Let's say you're a, any professional, you're a salesman. 
and you say, you know what, I have this amount of cold calls to make, this amount of shots to do, if somebody else would have my job, they would probably do better than me. And therefore you feel annoyed about why you, and, they, and therefore you don't feel comfortable to be able to speak up at the program. And you say, hey, that's, and therefore you feel inauthentic. And you have this anxiousness. But if I take the divine soul model and say, no, one second, I made 20 sales. Those 20 sales are bringing a profit to the company. I have the right to be a, proud of what I've done. That is 100% valid sales. That is my divine soul. That came through all the way. There's no need for a negative emotion there. So if I capitalize on my divine soul, on my authenticity, on the things that I've done right, and the things that I have done will forever stay that I have done. And what I know that I can do, I can do. There's no hypocritical about it. It's not nothing to feel bad about. So, of course, this applies more because we're talking about a divine soul versus natural soul for this case, in this scenario. In, it will help you. You can see it clearer when it comes to a Jewish or godly-oriented struggle. But it works with any struggle which claims inauthenticity or any struggle which tries to put us down and bog us down in claiming you're not the real deal. And a lot of times we have a lack of self-esteem because it's to tell us, hey, you're not the real deal. And what does it say? No, we are the real deal. We are the ones. I made that sale. I can tell you how I did it. It was only one, but I did it. Who says you would be able to get that sale? Did you meet that guy? Did you meet that vendor? Do you know that buyer? Were you able to fight that case? Do you know the case that happened? So when we stand with conviction for what we have done, and we are authentic in what we've done, and we claim it, then there's no going back. There's no negative feeling about it. On the contrary, there's a pride. The divine soul is the pride in what you do. The divine soul is the selflessness. And even though it sounds like counterproductive, presumably the divine souls should not be selfish, be selfless, because it's selfless, because it's not me, because we're working for a company, it's because of the sale that I did for the company that I can say and claim ownership to it. Or if it's for the hospital, for the faculty, whatever it is, in any case, it's a scenario. scenario. Again, I said, of course, it works best when we're talking about in a godly model-oriented struggle. And that's, of course, what the Alpha Rebbe was talking about, because the people that were asking them questions were not how they can get along with their peers, it was more about in a godly-oriented model. When it's a godly-oriented model, that, of course, trickles down an effect in our day-to-day life activities. That means when we feel authentic in the way we serve God, we'll feel authentic in the way we treat each other. So it starts in a godly model and has an effect into the way we work in our life. Just a quick review of what we learned today. Lesson one. Achieving authenticity. One, life is a constant struggle. We have the tools necessary to be victorious in our struggles, but we cannot win if we're lazy and lethargic. Two, laziness and lethargy are not mood issues. They are symptoms of negative emotions, uncomfortable emotions that make us feel bad. Conversely, Positive emotions, pleasant emotions that make us feel good, allow us to be victorious in our struggles. Three, because our life struggles are constant, positive emotion is needed at all times. Four, 
The human being's ultimate battle is not only between good and evil, but between the divine, selfless purpose and God-oriented soul, and the natural, self-centered soul. This is a battle over who we are, how we define ourselves, and it is ever-present. Five. Throughout this course, we will demonstrate that living with a divine soul paradigm is the solution to negative emotions and the key to experiencing positive emotions. Six. Sometimes we can't capitalize on positive emotions available to us because we feel hypocritical, drawn in polar opposite directions, the imposter syndrome. This is countered by the realization that we have true soul identities, and that any sacred selfless act that we do is an authentic expression of our divine soul. Next week, we will talk about embracing flaws, addressing shame, frustration, and feelings of inadequacy, even though we touched about in a little bit of way, way. Next week, same time, same place. Feel free to bring your friends, colleagues, mentors. And next week, we will have the books for it. If anybody else wants to register, you can tell them they can come and register, whatever it may be. Thanks for joining us. Anybody have any questions before we close up?